Matt Stiller, uh, great speaking with you. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, there's been all these uh, economic and supply chain ramifications uh, of the war in Ukraine, including uh, grain, the price of grain, uh, the components of fertilizer, nitrates, uh, potash, uh, for, and then natural gas, and then also uh, issues of some nations are now banning exports. If you want to comment on how crucial is this conflict in Ukraine to supply chain issues uh, and the, as far as like the supply of food and how vulnerable were supply were these supply chain issues prior to the war? Yeah, so it's pretty bad. There are 60 nations around the world that are net importers of calories, uh, which is up from about 15 in the 1990s. And that's largely because we've we've globalized our supply chains, this sort of free trade, right? We don't want to have any protectionism. And so you we grow food where it's most efficient to grow food. And then if you it's not efficient to grow food in your country and just import it. Um, and that sounds great. And you might get cheaper food for a time, but what happens when there is a real disruption to one of those or several of those places where they grow food? And as it turns out, you could have famine, hunger, and that's what we might be seeing around the world because of the very fragile globalized supply chain system that we've created and the disruption that we're seeing from first COVID and now the invasion of Ukraine. So Ukraine and also Russia are major producers of food and grains. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. They're a, a huge exporter of wheat, of, of um, corn, uh, things like sunflower oil, barley, and uh, they, they export a lot of it to the Middle East, to Africa, to Europe. You know, Europe will be able to get grains elsewhere, but all these other countries are gonna have to find their grain uh, and it's gonna be much more expensive and sometimes they can't necessarily afford it. Uh, and then Russia and uh, Belarus are big exporters of fertilizers different kinds of fertilizers. There's three different types. And, uh, and so fertilizer prices are now skyrocketing uh, this very concentrated industry. And so it's like in a lot of the places which could maybe pick up the slack for the wheat that's not being traded out of Ukraine, they're being hit with much higher fertilizer prices. So if you're a, you're a farmer in say Argentina, which big wheat growing region, and normally we could sort of switch over and say, well, Ukraine's not growing as much wheat. Maybe Argentina can grow more wheat. Well, now the farmers in Argentina have to buy uh, fertilizer and it's much more expensive. So it's a really serious problem and it speaks to fragilities in our supply chains and the dangers of having a globalized world where you have a small number of kind of monopolist nodes um, and the risk that happens when you have a kind of single points of failure on critical systems like food. And uh, this issue was brought up with uh, the Arab Spring as well, but uh, which nations do you see as most impacted, but sp more specifically, the predicting the political instability in the future, which is impacted by these supply chain and food crises. So thoughts on the geopolitical ramifications, the impact on the United States as well, and uh, 
is this type of like famine and food shortages inevitable in the near future? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think the biggest food a wheat importer is Egypt, but it's a little weird because some countries, I think Egypt also exports a lot of wheat. So you're really looking and looking at net calories. And uh, but I think you'll what you'll find is that countries in the Middle East and in Africa, countries like Pakistan, they will have I think very serious problems. Afghanistan is obviously it's, it's kind of a nightmare situation. Um, so, so the net importers of calories who also aren't particularly wealthy in other, uh, in other areas. So they, you know, they can't like, they can't make machinery and expensive machinery and use that income to buy food. Um, that's where you should be looking for, uh, the, the really serious problems and you are seeing them. You're seeing political, I know the, there's a lot of anger in Pakistan at the, at the president, uh, it's largely driven by food prices and you know everyone's freaking out trying to figure out how to source source food in the u.s um you know what you're seeing is food prices are going up you know i don't know if you've uh, been to the supermarket or to a restaurant lately but but prices are higher we're not going to starve but people are pretty unhappy politically and i think that you know, what, what you're seeing is like some farmers are doing better because the prices of what they grow or make uh, is, is, is go, are going up. But a lot of farmers actually aren't doing better because though what they sell, they can sell what they're growing for more, the inputs uh, to produce that, whether it's seeds and chemicals and fertilizer, herbicide, whatever, uh, farm, farm equipment, the price of that is going up by even more. And sometimes the the entities that buy and also fuel stuff. costs oh yeah well, obviously fuel costs i haven't even uh, gotten to that um yeah fuel goes into everything but you know if you're a if you're a farmer and you're selling you know corn or wheat you're really selling to adm or cargill just a small number of companies that, that are buying from you so the price might go up but it's not going to go up that much because cargill and adm are you know they have a lot of uh bargaining power in you know, in the market and you're just one farmer, you, you don't, even if you're a big farmer. So that's kind of the dynamic that we're seeing. And I think you're going to see political instability all over the, all, all over the world. Um, in the richer countries, people will probably be mad at their leadership and they'll vote in new leadership. And in poorer countries, you could see things like what we did see in the Arab Spring, which were, you know, I think you call them revolutions. How much of an impact uh, have the sanctions against Russia had on supply chain issues in the economy, the oil supply and shipping costs, which obviously fuel costs drive up the cost of food and thoughts on President Biden's handling of the sanctions uh, and the economic ramifications of that. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I would say the war and the sanctions are hard to pull apart because, you know, there's there's a lot of firms that won't do business in Russia, but also, you don't want to send your ships to the Black Sea because they might, you know, get shot at. So it's just, it's there's there's several things going on. There are Russia has other ports aside from the Black Sea, but uh, but that's a big one. Um, sorry, Ukraine uh, as well. Ukraine doesn't. But anyway, so the um, what what's happened because of the war and because of sanctions is is that Ukraine and Russia shipping has been heavily disrupted. And that matters because 
global shipping is is kind of a very very uh, hyper fragile choreographed affair the ship is scheduled to go from one city to another city to another city to another city um maybe from the west coast of the US to China then to you know to India you know to to Europe um and and those boxes are scheduled to drop something off and pick something up and drop something off and pick something up and if there's a disruption in one place then the whole thing gets backed up like a big traffic jam and you don't need to ha have to be a particularly big disruption it can just be when you, when you're when you have a lot of um capacity that's being used there's not a lot of slack even a small disruption is enough to really cause a big traffic jam and i think that's what we're seeing in ukraine russia where there's a lot of container boxes and ships that have been disrupted because of the war and then because of sanctions it's it's causing backups in uh in shipping all over the world and then in terms of this you know you you also have significant disruptions in financial markets so the way that a lot of producers of the way that producers of commodities finance their business is they have to they have to speculate in financial markets uh to to hedge themselves against volatile price changes and this creates a lot of fragility in financial markets and the sanctions i think don't necessarily like they they accelerate that fragility so it's it's you know we have a, a we have a pretty we have a, a system of globalization and finance and the that is based on the assumption that we're going to have a pretty we're going to have pretty smooth sailing at all times and because people assume we're going to have smooth sailing there's not really going to be geopolitical disruptions not really going to be financial crises they uh they just kind of pull as much slack out of the system as possible to make things as efficient as possible there's not a lot of reserves there's not a lot of extra capital there's not a lot of extra ships if you know just assume it can all be done really efficiently but of course there are financial crises there are wars there is friction and so we're seeing a a, a fair amount of disruption right now and that I I think one of the things that we're learning I don't know if I answered your question but that's kind of um Biden uh you know I think he's hit I mean I think he's handling the war pretty well um you don't you know he's not making it all about himself which I think is it's kind of always a temptation it's really you know it's a what the main actors here are the ukrainians and the russians and it's good to kind of make sure that 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 we don't send troops or anything like that in terms of the sanctions um and the economics i think they're doing a it's doing a pretty good job of keeping europe and the us and japan and south korea and whatnot unified and that's that's really important i'm not totally sure that they've got a handle on the economic situation I, I I suspect that they don't really know what's going on. That a lot of our globalized supply chains and financial markets are a little bit of a black box, um, which isn't really their fault. But you know, I, I hope they get a little bit more aggressive in terms of of managing these markets more uh, more carefully. Uh, does the financial system and monopoly issues uh, have an impact uh, on supply chains? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, if you're if you're you know if you have a ship full of grain that's moving somewhere, you know that 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 ship has to be financed. The grain has to be insured and financed. The um, you know there are people that are uh, 
buying the that have you know have contracts to buy the grain at a certain price and someone who's going to sell the grain at that certain price and the price you know the the spot price and the markets could be volatile so there's hedging to make sure that that when that grain gets delivered it can be delivered at that price and all of those hedges have to be financed it's a you know the financial markets are really core to how we organize uh growing and shipping and consuming commodities at this point so chaos in financial markets really does hit the the kind of the quote unquote real world in a pretty fundamental way and that's not just with grain it's things like natural gas and oil and nickel or you know whatever um kind of whatever it is how much of an impact uh do you see the war having on inflation and uh, the Fed raising interest rates? Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a good sense. I mean, I suspect that it probably won't have that much of an impact because the people at the Fed understand that uh, there's not that much the Fed can do about, there's nothing the Fed can do about supply chains. They can't drill for oil. They can't, you know, they don't have any ships, right? They, they, they can't affect the supply side particularly well. They, they might be able to intervene. They can intervene in financial markets, I guess. But um, I don't think there's much that they can do about inflation that's just strictly due to the war. The only thing they can do is to, is to kill demand and to just induce a big recession, which they might end up doing. Um, but I don't think they're going to do that because there's a war on. I think they were just kind of on that path anyway. How vulnerable was the economy prior to the war, taking into account the impact of the pandemic? And uh, what else has the Ukraine war revealed about any vulnerabilities in the U.S. economy? I think it was pretty vulnerable before the, you know, the, the way the Fed works. They say that what they do is they, you know, raise, uh, they print more money when there's slack and when there's slack in the economy so that there can be more economic activity and that that's lowering interest rates. And then if there's too much economic activity, they raise interest rates and that removes some activity from the market. Um, and because people don't want to borrow as much because interest rates go up and there's some truth to that, but the real way that the fed actually operates is that they, uh, they lower higher and lower interest rates eventually break a speculative fervor, um, right? Like our people really, our, our economy is now kind of a boom and bust economy that's based on whether financial assets are, have a high value or a low value. And the Fed has been pumping up financial assets in a sort of a crazy way for about 10 to 15 years. You see that maybe not 15, but 10 years. You see that housing prices are going nuts, the crypto stuff, all that stuff is very speculative and it's not producing enough income to justify the price. And the Fed keeps raising rates. And the idea is to eventually make that speculation like not viable anymore. But when you do that, ultimately, like it doesn't slow gradually or gently, it just cracks and you have a panic. So they are, uh, and, and I don't think the Fed knows what knows how to slow the economy without inducing a panic, because to do that, you would need to have like aggressive regulation and they don't really believe in aggressive regulation. So we were in a really bad spot before, the, uh, before this invasion and even before the pandemic. But uh, now I think things are more fragile and the Fed is, gonna, is probably gonna kick us into a panic 
Uh, so it reveals, I think, that we are, you know, what I said before, which is that we've we've built our economic order under some faulty assumptions. And those assumptions are that we're going to have a pretty, uh, we have a pretty placid uh, geopolitical environment, and we can really assume that there's not going to be a lot of friction in moving things all over the world. So it doesn't really matter where things are produced. It doesn't matter if some vital component is only produced in one place um, that's halfway around the world. If it's cheaper, it's cheaper, great. Um, and But that only makes sense if you can guarantee that that products can get from that place to where they need to be in a um, reliable way in a with a cheap price. And what we're seeing now is that there's there's we, we need some resiliency. You, you can't just make things in one place that we need. You need to produce them in multiple places uh, so that people can um, re rely on them. Even if one, um, one area, one vital node is, is knocked out, there are others to pick up the slack. So I think we've noticed that um, the, the sort of fantasy globalization model from the 1990s onwards was not realistic, and we're going to pay the price for that. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I think the other thing I have to add is that there's, you know, there's a political battle right now about what this war means. And what you're seeing is that the people that designed the system that is so fragile and that is so disastrous that we're dealing with now, their arguments are, well, uh, Ukraine shows that we have to figure out how to how to sustain this globalized world, which is so efficient and uh, effective and so important other, you know, these nasty populists who want to make things here, you know, we have to ward them off. And what they're trying to figure out is how do we get people to continue to support trade agreement, more trade agreements, more NAFTA style trade agreements, maybe just among democracies this time, but uh, certainly we don't want to go back to things like self-sufficiency in food. And I think we have to recognize that when people say, oh, those populists are terrible, um, look at all the bad things that they've done. They want to do inefficient things like produce things here as opposed to allow these, these uh, globalized production models. You have to be really skeptical about the people that created the existing system telling you how to save the existing system from the flaws that they baked in, right? Don't listen to the arsonists on how to stop fires even if arsonists really know a lot about fire, they're still not the people that you'd want to listen to on that subject. Thank you, Matt Storr uh, with KCSB News. Uh, this is Robert Stark. Thanks so much.